0: You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. to connecting the universe i'm author and researcher mike ricksecker back at you with another interactive class out of the secret library of the connected universe we have a fantastic one for you this evening since uh just last week it was announced that arrow had uh finally opened up their site for reporting we're going to get into that in just a moment here i see uh Some people are already down there in the house. Sarah Youssef, good to see you. And others are filtering in, which is wonderful. Um, But I want to let those know who are listening to the podcast version of this later, you can join us every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. live on the Connected Universe Portal. It's connecteduniverseportal.com. There is a public side on YouTube, you can watch that. The after show is members only, and then there's so much more going on uh, back behind the scenes. Uh, you got the morning mug videos a little bit that we're going to see here in just a moment. Uh, we've got behind the scenes. We've got monthly Q&A videos. We have a nice little community back there, so I do welcome you to join ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Uh, and for those that are members, I have some uh, some new things that are going to be uh, happening here with the the travel blogs, so um, the the video blogs that we have up there. So be on the lookout for that here pretty soon. Uh, but those again, that are members, uh, of course you can get the the app, uh, and that'll give you all the notifications and everything that you need for uh, keeping up with everything going on within the portal. So Jason Thompson's in the house. Hello from Atlanta. Great to see you this evening. There's Sam. Uh, Hello, as always, sending love and light to you and the people on the chat. Fantastic. So, of course, we do have the upcoming Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour, April 16th to the 28th, 2024. Uh, We still have spots open for that absolutely magnificent tour. Uh, This will be the second one, second annual tour, uh, will be the overall third one for me, but um, you will want to join this. There's so much that we dive into with the ancient Stargates. Do want to post our class question here. You guys can go ahead and answer it down in the chat. What type of impact, positive or negative? Do you believe the new Aero reporting site will have toward disclosure? Yeah, we're going to be talking about UFO, UAP disclosure, all of that wonderful stuff this evening. We're going to get into what this organization actually is, what they are actually accepting as far as reports and uh, and what you might be able to do to. Well, we'll get into that here in just a second. Uh, P.S. Or not. Uh, P.S. Fader or not P.S. Fader not Great to see you Always happy to have uh, One of Jimmy's listeners in the house uh, Jimmy's a good friend So uh, listen to Jimmy Church When you're not listening or watching here And uh, Tom McNicholas is in the house as well Super Chat Superstar Tom McNicholas And uh, yeah let me know about that uh, We'll talk about that one after the show All right. So I have a clip here that uh, basically it's a piece of the morning mug video. Those that are members of the uh, portal site. You got a nice, what was it? 23 minute video that we went into uh, regarding this topic. This is going to be an expanded version of that. Other details and what have you. Plus, we're going to have a conversation uh, down here. Really, really interested uh to get feedback from from you guys and what you think about all of this Uh, so let me go ahead and play the clip this is just like a minute and a half of that uh, morning mug video and those that uh uh, again are not members you you get access to that when when you are one so let's go ahead and watch this real quick welcome everybody to mike's morning mug I'll take a moment here to talk about the new Aero reporting site. This is the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. And this is supposed to be where if you witness a UFO or UAP, you get to report it here. But is it really All Domain? Before we dive into my opinion on all of this, I do want to say it's great that we are having a conversation about this now for Decades. If you want to talk about UFOs, UAPs, extraterrestrials, you're generally laughed at. It was something that wasn't taken seriously. But again, at least we are having the conversation about it. We're having congressional hearings, which is all great. They've kind of had to, though. And that's because we're all walking around these days with one of these in our pockets. So our, our government can no longer just blanket, deny, deny, deny having the congressional hearings, uh, assigning a task force, all of that is a good step in recognizing and at least admitting something's going on that we can't quite explain. Now, putting together an organization like Arrow is basically their way to control the conversation. Yes, they're finally admitting there's something going on, but it's going to be under their control. All right, so yes, under their control. it's called the all domain anomaly resolution office, but it's not really all domain. because all domain would mean right everything, all every location, every entity, everything that is experiencing anomaly should be able to report here, correct? It's not the case. Let's actually take a look at, at what they are doing here. So we're going to read a little bit here. All right. U.S. government UAP related program slash activity reporting. Arrow is accepting reports from current or former U.S. government employees, service members, or contractor personnel with direct knowledge of U.S. government programs or activities related to UAP dating back to 1945. These reports will be used to inform Arrow's congressionally directed historical record report. It goes on here, stating some statutes and laws and that, those sorts of things. A little further down, current operational UAP reporting: military personnel should report through their command or service in accordance with Gen. Admin. Joint Staff J-3, unidentified anomalous phenomena reporting and material disposition. Civilian pilots are encouraged to promptly report UAP sightings to air traffic control. Air receives UAP-related pilot reports from the Federal Aviation Administration. Okay. So basically, again, having an issue with the all-domain part. So if you're a government employee, former, serv- former service member, current service member, that sort of thing, uh, you can report through military channels or you can report through this site. That's, well, uh, that would include me, I suppose, because I am former military, six years in the Air Force. But that disregards a a large chunk of the population. Uh, Most people are civilians. They are not military. Many people are not prior military. Many people do not have a government position, so they can't report. The only only ones that can, uh, according to this, are civilian pilots who are instructed to report to air traffic control. And uh, where I would kind of question that is, well, do air traffic controllers, now they're very busy. (laughs) because they are uh you know directing traffic and all that and of course you know when something happens in the skies they are communicating uh with, with air traffic control but does civilian air traffic control have the right protocols put into place have they had the correct training to be able to receive these reports correctly or at least correctly, according to Arrow. Now, I would hope on the military side, they have put things in place to be able to uh, collect this data and put it into whatever system that they are coming up with here. And we really don't know what that is, right? Um, I guess... Civilians have to report to MUFON, although it doesn't state that there. Because they're not Arrow, this great new organization that is now we're getting serious with the UFO and UIP reports. We're going to do something about this now. They're disregarding most of the data. Now, I will say this. It is again, like I said in that little video clip there from the morning mug. It's good that we are we are having the conversation. It's good that uh, no longer is it you're just nuts, you're just crazy, all of that. Um, there is a there is a safe place. Uh, Ryan Graves, who was in front of the, uh, who was part of that congressional hearing. He was one of the three that was there uh, in front of the panel. And This is something that he has wanted, which is great. He's a former pilot. Uh, his his organization is America's for Safe Aeros or Americans for Safe Aerospace, and so he has always wanted a safe place for pilots to be able to report this type of phenomena. So that's great, and I get that. Um, so military, because there's this stigma, right? If you report this sort of thing, your flight status would come into question. when i was in the military and this is decades ago now this is early to mid 90s and and people who have read my books or have been you know following along for a while know of the story that i've told of the alaskan command building or many of us were seeing shadow phenomena down in the basement of alaskan command a lot of us were airmen we had staff sergeants technical sergeants uh, master sergeants, that, you know, those sorts of personnel down in there as well. Um, some of those NCOs would talk about it, uh, but really it was hush, hush, you know, kind of whispering amongst ourselves. You did not want to take it to, you know, some officer in charge, definitely not up to the uh, general who was running Alaskan Command. Uh, you were going to take it up there because you would find yourself down at mental health. You'd would, You would find your security clearance suddenly in question. For pilots, you don't want your flight status suddenly gone. So, you know, pilots were scared to report this sort of stuff. So this is, that part is good. I will give them that. But it doesn't provide civilians an outlet to be able to report the phenomenon. And the government is still controlling every single aspect of it. And... This has been a concern for a while. Okay, now they're trying to play, oh, we're, we're going to do something about it. Well, a year and a half ago, we saw Moultrie and Bray up there in front of the congressional panel, basically dodging every single question they could, giving the very, very bare minimum of information on any of their answers. And when they were asked something point blank, then they didn't have an answer. They were say, well, you know, I haven't seen anything in an official capacity. Okay, you guys have some comments coming in here. Let me take a look here real quick. Um, Let's see. Yeah, Ryan Clops, uh, feels like a smokescreen to distract us or play to lead us somewhere, possibly. Hey, there's Haley. Haley Stack is in the house. Great to see you, Haley. Uh, Sage Sleuth is also with us for and catching up. Great. So while I'm going through the uh, comments here, um, you'll be able to do so. And uh, Tom is asking, who would you report a UFO to? At this point, I would say MUFON. Uh, MUFON is a civilian organization. They have a a massive database uh, that they have been putting all of that information into. So MUFON is a uh, wonderful place to be able to still do that, Um, where... What I would like to see is the government seriously consider all the data that's in there. Um, I, I I haven't looked at MUFON's database, so I couldn't tell you how much is there. Um, but I know several people within MUFON, and they are um, they're great investigators. You know, they have uh, you know some very uh, rigid protocols that they follow when they're handed a case and they investigate. Um, so, you know, that's where we would have to go right now. But the, the government would not consider that quote unquote official. And that's the problem that we have here is that you could have all of these amazing cases reported to to MUFON about, you know, lights in the sky, um, extraterrestrials landing, you know, UFOs coming up out of the water, all that sort of stuff but the government won't consider it because it's not official. You know, they want to see it in a quote unquote official capacity. So I've been doing a lot of work with, uh, on Jacques Vallée lately in his research. And I've, and I have in the past anyway, my travels through time book. Um, there's some snippets that there out of Passport to Magonia we, we talk we're talking time, time travel, and uh entities that are interdimensional in nature and how time works for them. Uh that's where I've referenced his work. I've been kind of digging a little bit more into this lately. And um he's really one of the forerunners of this research. Now, he he worked with Jay Allen he, Heinick was his mentor, and then they, over the course of time, since they were so uh, tightly interwoven, there th- they became colleagues and worked on a lot of this together. So, J. Allen Heinick, of course, Project Blue Book. I uh, got the Heinick report uh, sitting you know, back on the uh, bookcase back there, and Heinick was one in which, you know, at the beginning, he was very skeptical. He was there, really, in Project Blue Book to find a real-world explanation for this phenomenon that was happening. he He wasn't a UFO guy. But over time, as so many of these cases and so much of this phenomenon could not be explained, he came to understand that a lot of these are actually real. These are real phenomena that are happening. You can't explain it away. 701 cases that are still open from Project Blue Book and the current commissions, they're not going to take a look at any of that. All of that, no. It's only new stuff. And to me, it's really strange and odd that um, a lot of that older material just completely gets ignored. It's like, oh, we got to. It's like it never happened. Well, no. I mean, this stuff has been going on for, well, we say decades, uh, but we know it's been going on for thousands of years. And that's where we get into ancient aliens and all that stuff. But um, so I found it interesting. And oh, Haley's saying that uh, she and Megan reported their sighting to MUFON. Great. Absolutely great. Uh, Happy that you did that. That's really the place to go right now uh, for civilians is is MUFON. And Jill Nobczynski is in the house as well. So one of the things I find interesting about this is look at the date here that they've listed. So, okay, only U.S. government employees, service mender, contractor personnel with direct knowledge of U.S. government programs or activities related to UAP dating back to 1945 very end of World War II. So that takes us before Roswell. Okay. It also is going to disregard any of the Foo Fighter reports. So Foo Fighters, for those that don't know, they were these anomalous balls of light that the pilots saw saw in the skies when they were fighting uh, in Europe. Now, when the Allied powers were witnessing this, they saw they thought it was some sort of strange technology that the Axis powers had. Germany had developed something, some sort of weapon, uh, some sort of technology that was going to do us harm. After the war, and they were going through the uh, German documents that still existed, Uh, and in talking with some of the personnel there, the Germans also saw that strange phenomenon in the sky and thought it was the Allied powers. So these strange lights in the sky that would follow the planes, you know, interact with them, chase them, all that sort of stuff, were from neither side. They ended up becoming called uh, the Foo Fighters, not the band. (laughs) Um, So, none of that, unless there was a very, very little bit in those few months from January till um, June, none of that would be considered at all. But what is kind of interesting is, okay, 1945 would include, it's a controversial Topic, but I've been going through it lately because I'm going through Valet stuff. It would include the possible Trinity crash, and what that is is, um, well, basically, it's it's this book, uh, Jacques Valet and Paula Harris, of a crash just north of the Trinity bomb site in 1945, basically a month after the bomb was exploded and a couple days after the uh, Japanese surrender. Now, this has become a very highly controversial and hot topic uh, because there was a journalist earlier this year that has uh, tried to say the whole thing was a hoax. Now, Harris investigated this possible crash for almost 10 years. Valet was brought into it back in 2017. Uh, so he was involved with the investigation for about four years, something like that. And apparently this three month investigation, he just, you know, and I don't really want to get into all of those particular details. Um, because it, it is a controversial topic. I find it odd that you have all these years and years and years worth of investigation. And this guy with just three months is you know, somehow going to debunk all that. And If you read Vallée's, uh response to it, it's a lengthy response. It basically tears the whole thing apart. I mean, just kind of silly stuff in uh, there like, well, you know, it couldn't have happened uh, the way that they said it. Basically, it was a couple of kids. It was a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old uh, basically saw this in, you know, one is now deceased. The other's very elderly. And a lot of it's, you know, second and third-hand accounts, which they state in the book. But they're you know, like, well, you know, the one guy that they said uh, they brought to the site, this, you know, policeman. Um, well, couldn't have been him because a guy with that name from New Mexico was uh, still in Europe at the time. Okay, well, yeah, but there are plenty of other people that could have that name. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so it's just silly stuff like that. Um, but again, I really don't want to get into the controversial side of that. I just find it interesting that they're using the date 1945. You know, is it possible that they are still looking for material from that particular crash, that particular incident, which, again, would have predated Roswell? Or are they saying, yeah, nothing during the war is going to count? Nothing even before the war is going to? It's a really, really weird year to kind of throw out there. And I do want to say this. I, I I did I did include this photo talking about this particular case. This is kind of a little sidebar here. So this is a bracket that was supposedly found in the records. I've had this actually chemically analyzed. So, um, and you can see some really you know strange holes um in some really weird places you know what in the world would that possibly fit no idea and it comes back as an aluminum alloy nothing atypical to what we would have here on earth so you know and this is yeah, that's laid out in plain sight in the book you know they're not disguising that they're like yeah it's just a basic aluminum alloy nothing unusual but here's something to consider. In re- in regards to that, and this is just my own personal take. You know, because it's not space agey enough. You know, it's not exotic enough to you know, be considered anything otherworldly. Okay. Well, why does it have to be so completely different? from other things on Earth to be considered that it might have origins that aren't Earthly. Why do, why why would a extraterrestrial race have to develop everything differently than here on Earth? So that we immediately disregard it if it's anything close to what we, we might have. I mean, a lot of the base elements are still going to be the same elsewhere in the universe. Like when we look at asteroids uh, and we find that you know, they have things like iron, you know, and other minerals that we also here have here on Earth. Um, stands to reason that extraterrestrials from another planet would have access to those same metals and may have developed a process that you know, they came up with some sort of lumen. You're going to want a light material to travel through space anyway. But this is also assuming that the craft came from space. Because I'm also of the philosophy that not all of these craft that we see in the skies and potentially crash here on Earth have an otherworldly origin. I believe many of them are from here. And no, I'm not saying that they are military in nature, but may have some sort of interdimensional quality to it, that it could be another race of beings and entities living on another dimensional plane here on Earth, which then certainly they would have access to all the same types of minerals, Metal metals <laughs> i could speak minerals metals uh, if they've been watching us studying us they would learn techniques that we've been using and of course it would be wonderful if we could watch them and learn their techniques which is what a lot of this um the material that grush says that we've had that he's been privy to those conversations. Those are things that they would be, of course, learning and trying to reverse engineer to learn about what those you know, particular technologies are. You know, all of a sudden, you know, something magnificent crashes in your backyard, you're going to want to learn about those different things that are included. So vice versa. You know, it's one way to share information, to share technology, to share knowledge is to study each other's technology. Let me see what other comments you have down in here. Um, So Android, uh, they are starting the same year as the Trinity Nuclear Test Site. Coincidence? I think not. Yeah, and see, exactly. And uh, hey, there's uh, Jess. Good to see you, Jess. So uh, go check out Jess's show, Escape the Simulation. It's a good one. So, yeah, and this is a thing, uh, Android, is that Valet does a lot in that book to bring everything back to the Trinity testing. Because our government, and, and see, here's the thing, it's like, you know, they they want us to trust them. Trust us. When they set that bomb off, they didn't warn the people in the area. And the way it was set off was in a much, much worse way than what they did at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, there are fewer people in the area. There weren't as many people that, you know, there's so much death and destruction, of course, in those two places. But they essentially set this thing off almost right at ground level here in New Mexico. So you had maximum spread, maximum spread of all the radioactive material. At Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they set those off 2,000 feet in the air. There was somebody down the pipeline after they set that off in New Mexico. They said, um yeah, while we want to end this war so it doesn't drag on for like the next two or three years, we want to just devastate these cities. I mean, really, there, there were military targets there that they were um, like massive munitions factory and things like that in Nagasaki. And so they wanted to completely you know cripple that. But somebody down the line said, Um y- yeah, we want, as far as like the people, you know, we, we want them to be able to kind of regrow their city, you know, at some point um, and kind of rebuild. We, we don't want them to not be able to you know, build anything or grow anything there for the next you know, however many hundreds or thousands of years. And in that area of New Mexico right now, the because um, there used to be some like you know, larger bushes and trees and things like that. And it's very, very, very scant and small now. Because of the fallout from there. So they haven't really been able to regrow too much. And there's horrible stories of, like, you know, cattle that lost all their hair Uh, when the bomb went off and, you know, they're hearing the rumbling and they're seeing this flashlight, people looking out their windows and suddenly becoming blind. Um, Terrible. So Valet does a lot to bring that to the people's attention, like uh, people going sterile, couldn't have kids. Uh, Kids that were actually born during that time, you know, couldn't reproduce afterward and just, you know, a lot of cancer and things like that that developed in people around that area because the government didn't warn them. So, again, we have this organization now, Arrow, and the government saying, trust us, you know, we're going to take care of it. Yes, we admit finally that there's something going on in the skies that we can't explain. And again, it comes down to the fact that they kind of have to right now. They have to, you know, everybody is walking, around. I said it in that little clip, everyone's walking around with one of these in their pockets right now. You know, you have your cell phone, you at least have, most people, have an HD or better camera in their pocket. The newer ones, and for the last several years now, have been coming out with 4K cameras. be 8K here soon. You can get an 8K in a type of camera that I have pointed at my face right now, but soon it's going to be 8K on these. So the type of image that you can get on those now, the type of photo or video that you can take on those these days are insanely good quality. So you can't just pawn it off anymore as that's a blurry image or okay, you're looking at a night sky and there's a blurry color spot on it. So the government could just sit back that whole time and just deny, 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 and say, nothing's going on, nothing's going on. You know, that's just, you know, people are, are crazy or, you know, they're making things up in their heads or, you know, that UFO stuff is just science fiction. So you yeah, had the Condon Report come out in uh, 1968, which basically shut everything down. Um, you know, the United States was growing weary essentially, of the uh, UFO research that was being done at that time. You know, they had sunk money into it. Uh, You had Project Blue Book that was, you know, running along. And, you know, a lot of the stuff, sure, they were finding real-world explanations for, you know, some 13,000 cases. Again, 701 that they never actually closed that are still open. But according to the government, that they weren't getting enough out of it. So the Condon report basically said that there wasn't enough scientific merit to continue on with the UFO research. Basically, that killed Project Blue Book. Condon himself, he had all of that from that commission. Uh, He had all of the documents from that investigation destroyed. Because he he thought it was so worthless, yet all of that documentation destroyed, and oh, it's crazy. So, uh, following his testimony, uh, Hynek's testimony uh, during the uh, the Condon committee hearings, he had a uh, press conference afterward, and Condon was caught sleeping through the uh, the press conference, and even up to his dying days, you hear these stories about how he was you know, trying to get, convince people to stop looking into all of this because he just felt it was such a waste of time. Was it really that he thought it was such a waste of time or was it something else? And that's kind of the question there. But yeah, the Condon Report basically killed it for decades up until now, and suddenly we, we are reopening it. And I, I really believe it's you know, because you can't deny stuff's going on in the sky anymore. We have too much technology uh, for the common person to be able to look up in the air and say, hey, there is something legitimate going on here. So they have to address it somehow. But it's like, okay, if we're going to talk about this now, We want control over the narrative. We want control over what's being said about it. We're doing a very official manner. And, you know, we're going to say, okay, this is the government's job. We're, you know, here for the people. We're doing our, you know, civic duty. And we're going to be, you know, doing a very official capacity and buy the book. Okay. But then you got two representatives there in front of a congressional hearing and they can't answer basic questions. Um, so it's, it's not entirely a farce. Again, there is data being collected. Um, yeah, it is only military or civilian pilots to air traffic control. (laughs) So it is something, but there's so, so much more being lost along the way. So Android. I believe there has not been any nuclear bomb testing in the world for several years. Russia is making moves to start testing again. If they do, then do you think it will increase UFO activity? Good question. Good question. Um, Yeah, to start nuclear testing again, a horrible idea. I mean, Russia has locations out there now like lakes and things like that that are just still riddled with, uh, with fallout from their testing. Um, you know, we, we have seen horrible things that you know were done here on American soil with the nuclear testing. Um, will UFO activity start to increase again? Yeah. A lot of people have made that connection of, um, or have tried to say, Hey, you know, when we dropped the bomb, when we dropped the bomb, it woke up the other intelligent life in the galaxy. I said, "Oh, they're doing something here that could be disruptive to the universe. So let's go and stop that." Possibly, and I think it's because you know most people re, um, relate UFO activity or the beginning of UFOs to Roswell. It was 1947. Now Kenneth Arnold had his sighting just before Roswell, still 1947. But people were seeing and experiencing things long before that. You know, we talked about the Foo Fighters earlier. Um, you know, there have been reports going on, you know, even in the 20th century, before Roswell. When I did research for Ghosts and Legends of Oklahoma, that's a, a historic book on ghost stories and hauntings and things like that throughout the state. But when I was uh, researching the background of the bell Isle area and unusual activity that had happened there, one of the things I came across was when that area was still an amusement park. So back during the 1920s, you know, there was a reported uh twinkler quote unquote twinkler. They have UFO a term for UFO back then. They called it a twinkler uh, in the sky. It is, know, moving along. Um, Not a weather balloon, according to the reports at that time. It was some sort of unidentified object that was in the sky. Um, Lake Michigan Triangle, Tom McNicholas is in the house. He he likes it when I talk about uh, the Lake Michigan Triangle. When that Northwestern flight went missing in 1950, a couple of police officers, uh, this was two hours after the last transmission. They were by the lake, you know, doing their, doing their duty and keeping a, you know, lookout for anything in regards to the flight. And they had reported seeing red lights over the lakes uh, that lasted for several minutes. Now, these were lights that have been seen over that lake as far back as 1913, as far as like the earliest reports uh, that we've been able to gather, but possibly even longer. So, that's something that had been happening there long before 1947 Roswell, long before 1945. And then of course we could get into a lot of other things when we start talking like ancient astronaut theory and things like that, you know, taking it back thousands of years. So this activity has been going on for a long, long time. And they become alerted to atomic and nuclear testing. So, one of the things that I found interesting about, I'll go back to this. I'll go back to this book. You know, I actually had the, uh, when I posted about that, was it a week ago? Um, I had some people on my, uh, on my Facebook say, oh, you know, that was a hoax. Okay. Had others say, oh, cool. Um, Paula Harris reshared uh, reshared it out on Twitter, or X, formerly Twitter. Um the actual journalist that, you know, when they had the three-month investigation called me on it. Linked back to his uh his article. And so I started looking it up and I see like all kinds of like, you know, reddit discussions, he's all in and um but I don't know, it's, it's almost like and maybe he has a Google Alerts uh, set up or something that, uh, you know, anytime somebody says something about it, pops up. Um, I'm a writer. I don't do that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't jump on top of anytime somebody mentions time travel that, hey, I got a new book on that. Um, but but I'll go back to it because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So the stories that they talked about, um, the beings that were seen, again, they're... They were children at the time, seven and nine. And, um, you know, what they saw, what they reported were small beans, maybe about the size of children. They kind of related it to, you know, they were kids, but they weren't. And the type of heads that they had were insect in nature. Um, kind of related it to a little bit, not so much the bodies, but at least the head. Um, Very kind of like praying mantis-like. Or fire ants. Okay. Interesting. Keep that in mind. So, not there in New Mexico, but just one state over in Arizona. Arizona. There are some interesting indigenous stories around the Montezuma Well area, the Verde Valley. These are origin stories that during the Great Cataclysm, the same cataclysm that every single culture talks about, right? During the Great Cataclysm, the humans basically running for their lives were taken in to these underground areas, basically through the Montezuma well area, by the ant people, quote unquote ant people, that lived down there. And they housed them and they protected them throughout the great cataclysm. And then when everything subsided and settled down, then the humans came back out and they repopulated so th- my co-host is from Edge of the Rabbit Hole, Victoria Monday. This is where she starts talking about hollow earth and hollowed. like there are definitely some cavernous areas around the globe. Old lava tubes, magma chambers, uh, large caves, things like that. Um, it's not the whole earth is completely hollow, but there are some large, large areas uh, throughout the globe. Uh, and things that humans have done, we know that the military has made you know, big cavernous areas. They have, they have dug out some underground bases, but we see other locations like Darren kuyu uh, which is absolutely massive. and so many levels down, so many chambers, connects to other areas. It's wild. But the point of this is, this story, this origin story, talks about the ant people. In this story from 1945 in here, Describes these entities, these beings, kind of similar in nature. I was, you know, when I was reading, I'm like drawing some parallels here. Huh. Interesting. So, going back to your question, Android, what if these massive explosions like this in an area that has you know, reported these type of beings? does cause some sort of interdimensional rift. Because these type of beings, I don't don't know if they physically live with us underground. I mean, maybe they do. And maybe that caused them to pop out from underground with their craft, which then again, why wouldn't they have some technology of ours if they're like literally physically living under us? They would be watching and observing and getting some of that you know some knowledge of what we do, like oh hey. Those those crazy humans—they actually made something interesting over there. That interesting aluminum alloy, hmm, we might be able to do something with that, right? Or even from an interdimensional nature, same thing. So um, so yeah, it's it's possible, it's possible that there is a connection, but I would not say that's the only connection to cause UFO and UAP uh, interactions. Um, DKO saying the Iroquois also mentioned similar things. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, you'll find that a lot of the, uh, indigenous tribes will talk about, you know, these sorts of things and I love. Um, I love the stuff from the American South, but Iroquois, of course, is, um, more the Northeast part of the country. Um, but yeah, you listen to the you know, old uh, indigenous stories and legends, and it's like our modern science likes to say, "Well, you know, those are stories." Uh, and at, and what's even worse is you know they're oral traditions that are passed down, you know. So things are going to get changed and modified. Here's the thing, though, is when you talk to uh, indigenous indigenous tribesmen or you talk to shamans from those tribes. They will say, no, our oral traditions, you had to be very, very precise because of the fact that we didn't write it down. We had to be very, very precise because within those oral traditions, there are life lessons. There are instructions on how to perform specific tasks, you know, whether it has to do with uh, their community, building, uh, health, you know, things like this. So it had to be very, very precise keep passing it down passing it down because they didn't write it. And they needed to make sure that the next generation got that information. So that whole operator game thing that, you know, we play in first grade. I know I've talked about this here recently. Um, and, and I remember in first grade doing this and I was kind of uh, in this horseshoe in the middle of first grade class where my desk was. Um. But you know, starting over there from the right, the first person that was over there, I have no, I can't remember what the teacher had said it it was. But you know, starts off with, um, I don't know, John drives a blue car, and it could be the next kid or the kid after. Remember, these are kids in first grade. They're going to be goofy. They're going to be silly. And it turns from uh, John drives a you know green car, green car to. Uh, you know, Alice rides a spotted rhinoceros or whatever. And so by the time it gets to me, it's completely changed because kids are goofy. And it gets all the way around. The teacher, you know, makes a point, you oh, know, see how, you know, uh, you know, you can't rely on here. Well, we're talking six-year-olds. Of course, you know, in that situation, um, where they're being silly and goofy, you, you're not gonna be able to rely on that. Um, but... Uh, indigenous shamans, medicine men, um, you know, even even the warriors uh, in their stories are again going to be very, very precise. You know, the hunters are going to be very, very precise because you know, this is how we live. Um, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, those following us know these different things so that, you know, the next generation knows how to hunt, that next generation knows how to cure some sort of ailment. And a lot of that uh was included within the stories. So uh I'm glad you brought that up. Sarah, what do these ant people eat? I have no idea. <laughs> I could not tell you what they ate. Um good question. I you know the person that would probably know is no longer with us, and that's Clifford Mahooty. Um he he passed away here Year and a half, two years ago, something like that. Um, he's the one. He he was a Zuni elder. Um, he was um, he was ostracized from the community because he was talking about a lot of this esoteric knowledge, and in, in a lot of those cultures, they don't they don't want us, the people, the outsiders, uh, to know a lot of their um, secrets and hidden knowledge and things like that and um and just in the brief times that i talked to him um and i hate trying to speak for him like this because he when he's passed um but in talking a bit with him and some others that i've talked to um i feel that a lot of their knowledge is being lost over time because there aren't enough people Keep up the tradition. So, because they don't want their knowledge to be lost, they are now starting to tell people. And I saw this in when I was doing my research for Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. Um, And this was back in the 1930s. Michael Kazimnuk, who was um, an anglicized name, yes, but uh, he was a native Inuit and he did not want the, uh, the legends and stories of the Inuit to get lost to time. So, 500 handwritten pages you know, writing not down all of this material. So, um, so it's wonderful that we have some of that uh, information uh, available to us to go off of. And that's how we have found out, you know, about a, a number of these different things is, you know, people have um, against the, you know, basically against the rules of the tribe have, you know, talked about a number of these different things. So that's how we know, you know, some of these stories about uh, like, skinwalkers and Wendigo and, and all of these other, uh, beings and entities that we talk about now. Um, somebody had to reveal that to us. So, um, throw down any more questions. If, uh, if you have them to see Tom has one up here, is it true that if we can harvest most of the minerals from an asteroid, it would be invaluable? Yeah. The, the math, um, <laughs> uh, cause there was that, um, is it the asteroid that they've detected up there that has you know, the whole thing is it's almost like I forget the mineral but it's like completely solid with um, whatever it is and uh, on earth right now it would be worth trillions on trillions of dollars and so you have all these people and obviously oh I want to go get it you know and bring it here and that could be rich the thing is supply and demand if you uh, if you suddenly flood the supply, it drops the value like a rock. So, you know, because it's kind of like, um, take the ink pen in my hand. There's like a billion of these on the planet right now. So this is worth, you know, very, very little. Um, But something like gold or platinum or whatever is like in limited supply. So that makes it uh, more valuable. There's also some... Like when it comes to gold there's some other properties to it that make it valuable gold will always have a value um so so i recommend getting a hold of some uh people kind of fear the economy's gonna you know crash and all that sort of stuff um it's been kind of schizophrenic here for the last couple of years um gold will always have a value though because it is used in so many things um it's not just because you know we gave it a value it's, oh it's shiny and all this stuff it's it um it doesn't tarnish it has a lot of fantastic uh electromagnetic uh, properties to it it's very malleable um you know we use it for you know a lot of things that we do in space you know uh, you know, it's a it's a wonderful shield against the you know, radioactivity coming off of the sun, so they use it as a shield up there uh, for those sorts of things. So yeah, gold has a uh, a wonderful value to it, always will. So, but um, but if you were to suddenly flood the planet with a whole bunch of gold, it, it would drop the value of it for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, the gold record on on Voyager. Oh yeah. We sent some of it away. (laughs) We sent some of it away. And see, that's another thing too is, you know, there's a lot of space junk up there. There's a lot of things that we've shot out there in space. So, um, so we have depleted some of our resources here as well. Um, When it comes to iron, some of our gold, these aluminum alloys that we're coming up with these other uh, electronic components, you know, optical um, elements and things like that. There's a lot of stuff that we've put up there that you you do that. See, here's the thing. Um, now at this point, it's negligible. But if we were to throw enough stuff up there into space and decrease the mass of the planets by enough, again, it would have to be <laughs> A significant amount of stuff we'd have to throw up there into space. But if you were to uh, deplete the mass of the planet by enough, you could change the orbit. Um, So we do need to be careful of that. And that uh, does give us a reason to seek out the asteroids and start mining the asteroids and things like that. uh, Because we kind of don't really want to screw with. (laughs) <laughs> with the orbit of the planet and, and things like that. Uh, we don't want to mess with the, the precession, the wobble. Um, you know, eventually things will change. Uh, that's a given. They will eventually change. Just the nature of the way solar systems and galaxies and the universe works. The solar system at some point will no longer be here. Our planet will no longer be here 5 billion years from now. Um, I mean, that's a long ways away. But over the course of time, as we get closer to that mark, things will become very, very different here on the planet as you know the sun goes through its phases and things like that. Because uh, the sun has the, the biggest impact uh, on our planet as regards to heat, weather, all that sort of stuff. Number two is is the oceans. Um, yes, we humans have had a negative impact on the planet. Um, but those two are, are the biggest. So, um, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get out of it, which is another reason why we need to look into, uh, becoming a spacefaring civilization. We've kind of poked ourselves outside the planet a little bit here and there. We're taking a look around, um, We've gotten as far as as the moon. And then we have, uh, you know, satellites and probes and things like that uh, around the galaxy. And a couple that have, around the galaxy, around the solar system. A couple that have just escaped here over the last several years. Um, But it's going to take a bit more than that. So, all right, everybody. That is going to wrap it up for this. Uh, Yeah, when it comes down to it, Arrow like i said it's great that we're having the conversation it's great that military pilots have a place to go well and they're saying civilian pilots can talk to you know air traffic control still not confident over that there's a you know uh, air traffic control is properly trained on you know how to take those reports then again I, as far as the the military chain there i since this is rather in New, I don't know how well their reporting system is in, but they have this site now where you can go there and you can submit your report. Um, so there's a place for for those particular people to go. But they've kind of left the civilians in the dust here. Again, reported to MUFON, and I was happy to hear that uh, some people tonight, uh, Haley and Megan, had. It's awesome. Um, but is there a way of controlling the narrative? At this point, it's their way of controlling the narrative and saying, trying to make it look like, oh, hey, we're doing something here. Look at all this that we're doing. It's a very, very little bit that they're actually taking in for the data. You know, and if you're leaving like 98% of it on the table, it's your data set that you end up with is not going to be anywhere near as accurate as it could be if you had all of the rest. So, all right. Everybody have a wonderful night. Till next time. Time really exists.